0: Humanist Take on the World, episode 18, Ancient Paganism. Welcome to another episode of Humanist Take on the World. This is Dustin. And our new top patron asked for me to go into what was religion like before. Christianity? Like, what was the old ancient paganism stuff like? And that's actually something that I covered in my failed attempt to do the schisms podcast. So it was the third episode out of the five total that I did. <laughs> and so for the first time ever, I'm going to be reusing content that I've already published, but it wasn't on this feed. So it's still new, uh, at least for this feed. And And please note that when I do mention, there's one point in there where I mention Upcoming episodes that won't be happening. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I- enjoy. We need to talk about what the term even means, where it comes from, because the modern concept of paganism is a polytheistic or pantheistic folk religion. And this meaning has been in place since the late Middle Ages. You know, around the time of the Inquisition and witch hunts. The Latin word pagan did refer to rural people or country folk, at least in the late vulgar Latin period. And the Inquisition found rural people, especially women, engaged in some of the same practices their ancestors had for millennia. Whether it be medical remedies, helping with contraceptives, abortion, and childbirth, or just general offerings to the gods or ancestors for the benefit of their families. And this ended with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people, mostly women, being burned at the stake or otherwise slaughtered. In classical Latin, pagan just referred to citizens, and often specifically to civilians, and some of the earliest Christian uses of pagan were used to apply to Christians as citizens of Rome. But by the late Latin period is being used by Christians to refer to the other, as in, they were the soldiers of Christ— And those who weren't were merely civilians. I'm sure some would have also used it as a distinction of the pagans that had full rights of citizens while Christians were persecuted by the empire. But by the time that Christianity was the official religion of the empire, and non-Christian religions were persecuted, pagan could have been used as a pejorative and description of those who are now the outsiders. But more often, especially in the Eastern Empire, they would call them Hellenes, or Greeks, And this is important to understand, because before that, the concept of pagan religion, or even religion as a concept itself, would have been a very foreign idea to the ancient peoples that we would now call pagans. At the basic core, the pagan cults, and here I use the term cult in the academic sense, of an identifiable group of religious practices and followers, all of whom had a lot of similarities. And for those of you who are familiar with the ancient Jewish temple practices, these would probably sound pretty familiar. At the core, it was all about following the rituals and making offerings to a god whose favor you wanted to get for yourself, your family, your community, or even your country. And it was all about animal sacrifice. Most ranked bulls and oxen at the top as the most valuable sacrificial animals, followed by cows, sheep, goats, poultry, and pigs. In Jewish animal sacrifices, you couldn't sacrifice pigs. The poor were stuck with doves. But in the rest of the world, piglets were the cheapest thing you could use as an offering on an altar to a god. And the animals would be killed in a ritualistic manner. In the Greek style, that involved a woman carrying a basket on her head that concealed a knife while leading the animal to the altar. Then she would slit its throat, the blood would be collected and then dumped back on the altar, or possibly other places around the temple, if there even was a temple. The animal would then be butchered with the inedible bits, such as the organs, some of the fat, and the bones, being burned up as the offering to the god. The rest of the meat would be cooked up and eaten by the people present for the offering, including the priests and priestesses. And this is very similar to how the ancient Jewish temple practices were um worked on holy feast days and at festivals the communities would or the community would come together and dozens or even hundreds of cattle would go through the ritualistic slaughter and the hundreds or thousands of people present would join in on the feast and there were a few additional common offerings made beyond just the the basic animal sacrifice farmers were obligated to make offerings from the first fruits of the harvest to thank the gods for the harvest. People would usually pour out a libation out of the first bit of a glass of wine for the gods, or at least the first bit of the first glass of wine. And finally, people would burn incense on the sacred fire as just this little, like to help prayer get up to the gods, much like votive candles that modern Catholics use. A few regional cults would engage in Holocaust sacrifice, wherein, the entire animal was burnt to a crisp, but this was very rare. Sacrifices would be offered at altars. Most towns and cities would have permanently installed altars, but people could erect temporary altars as needed at other times. These altars would usually be on the highest ground, and since ancient cities were usually built on hills, the altar would usually be at the top of the hill, right next to the palace. Good examples of this you can still find today are the altar at the high place at Petra in Jordan, and the rock in the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Virtually all altars would have been accompanied by one or more obelisks, or standing stones. Petra has two giant obelisks on the trail to the altar. And for another example, the Washington Monument is an obelisk, and it was the tallest structure in the world when it was built. Although it didn't have... An altar with it. Altars that were used most frequently might have had a temple built around, or more commonly, next to it. They would have enough offerings coming in to support full time priests. And with some of the largest, they would develop a large campus, like the Acropolis in Athens, with sacred groves, livestock, and residences for the priests. And having livestock present would make it so that rich people who do not own livestock could buy the livestock from the priests to then sacrifice on the altar that the priests could then also eat. Uh, it, It was just good business. And this really isn't all that different from what's found in modern Catholic, Orthodox, and mainstream Protestant churches. And to a certain extent, all modern Christian churches. The penitent take an offering to the place where the altar is, in this case, it's money, then engage in a ritualistic meal, With bread that depending on the particular church is believed to be the actual or symbolic flesh of Christ and wine as the actual or symbolic blood of Christ. And even the most lax of mainstream Christians will still attend and take part in the rituals at the appropriate festivals, often Christmas and Easter, coinciding roughly with the winter solstice and spring equinox, as well as major life events such as births, deaths, and weddings just as people have done for thousands and thousands of years. Gods were a local phenomenon, but most areas would have multiple gods that they would worship that would govern the various aspects of life, such as a god of war and a goddess of fertility. And then when you had a large enough pantheon, one would usually be the king of the gods. It's worth noting that fertility gods generally were goddesses and they were responsible not only for helping humans have babies, but also livestock, and they would also help the crops grow. So really, they were the most relevant gods for most people. Between trade, the Achaemenid Empire, the Hellenistic kingdoms, and the conquests of the Roman Republican Empire... There was a lot of exchange of ideas, including cultic practices and gods. Generally, each tribe or civilization's pantheon or particular set of gods would overlap, at least in function. And this resulted in a blending of the pantheons, such that the Greek Zeus, Roman Jupiter, the Norse Odin, Slavic Pirun, and Egyptian Ra were all viewed as the same god. Apollo, among other things, was the god of light and the sun, so he was equated with the sun gods everywhere. Unless the sun god, as in the case of Ra, was also the king of the gods, who would have been equated with Zeus. But since all life is dependent on the sun, basically all pantheons had a sun god, and Apollo was a very popular one throughout the Hellenistic kingdoms and the Roman Empire as well. Even the Roman Republic. And then when two pantheons were merging, if there wasn't a local equivalent, then the foreign god would often be added to the local pantheon. And getting back to Apollo, uh, one of the names he was equated, or one of the gods he was equated with, was Sol. And in the late imperial period, Sol was more commonly referred to as Sol Evictus, the undying sun god. And this one will get particularly interesting in a few episodes. In Rome, families would often venerate their dead, and this was done elsewhere as well. They would worship their ancestors as personal deities—well, sort of personal deities, more a step below demigods, kind of like, uh, kind of like Christian saints. And in Rome, this would result in the patriarch of the family being viewed as the family's embodiment of the genius or the spirit of all of their ancestors and he might get called Jupiter on Earth by a client or slave, or even just a family member. And his wife would embody the Juno of their ancestors, not to be confused with the wife of Jupiter, Juno. A family's most notable dead would also have death masks that would be displayed in the atria of their homes and used at funerals to represent their ghostly presence. While Rome wouldn't deify living people during the Republican period, most of the kingdoms around them routinely did. Most notable would be Alexander the Great, who was declared a god by many of the peoples he conquered in their own traditions of god-kings. Because the Persians did it, the Egyptians did it, and just about everybody in between did it. And this included his being declared pharaoh by the Egyptians, a title that came with deification automatically in the Egyptian cult. And in response to this, Alexander sent word back to Greece that they should start worshipping him. And they did. The cult of Alexander continued throughout the next nearly thousand years until it was replaced by Christianity and Islam. The kings of the Hellenistic kingdoms also claimed to be god kings. And in the, uh, with the earliest ones, they claimed to be gods before they claimed to be kings. And this was especially the case with the Ptolemies in Egypt, identifying as both the pharaoh god king in the Egyptian cult and the Alexander-style god-king in the Greek cult, because they ran both simultaneously. And there were a few Roman generals who, after great victories, would be declared imperator by their soldiers. which just meant conqueror, or the victorious one. And they would have sacrifices made to them. This all changed with Julius Caesar, who attained the title Pontifex Maximus before he became consul. And Pontifex Maximus just means chief priest and he was deified by the Senate after his death, thus making Octavian the son of God, and Octavian took that a step further with the title Augustus, which had his own divine implications. And generally, it was only dead emperors who were actually deified and worshipped, which required ratification from the Senate. But much like the ancestor worship at the family level, an emperor would hold the genius or the combined spirits of the dead emperors who were deified, and this resulted in a distinction without any meaningful difference. Since some people would make sacrifices to dead emperors, while others would make sacrifices to the dead emperors via the living emperor's genius, in other words, despite the emperor not actually being viewed as divine, people would still worship and make sacrifices to the emperor as if the emperor was a living god-king. The gods were a constant and normal part of daily life. State functions would generally include sacrifices. Most meat that people would eat would start as a sacrifice, even if sold at a meat market. And why light a fire if you don't take the opportunity to throw a little incense on it? And why have a glass of wine without pouring out a little libation to the gods? Every chance people got, they would engage in the rituals needed to curry favors with the gods. That's just common sense. If, if the gods are, are controlling your life, why not do whatever you can to take advantage of any opportunity to get them to help you? And the Roman republican and imperial policy was to tolerate and support local cults. Heck, this is what Alexander and the Hellenistic kingdoms and the Persians before them did. That is what the Achaemenid emperor Cyrus the Great was doing in funding and supporting the rebuilding of temples that the Babylonians had destroyed. They viewed it as by doing this they could gain the favor of these local gods gods they weren't familiar with and didn't know how to worship and that by doing that people would offer sacrifices on their behalf to these additional gods but it was also but they also believed that it would maintain stability and order by not disrupting the basics of society and if there was one thing that the romans especially valued it was order those who engaged in the traditional worship of the gods regardless of what gods those were, and tolerated the worship of other gods were just fine by the republic and the empire. While those who condemned the worship of other gods, such as Jews and Christians, well, they were a dangerous threat to that order. The safe way to dissent was henotheism, a worship of only one god while not denying the existence of others. And this was most notable with the last several emperors before, and including Constantine, who were henotheists only worshipping Solovictus, the unconquered sun god, a.k.a. Apollo. Other dissenters were viewed by society around them as atheists, even though they were generally deists. Uh, Aristotle and Plato would be examples of people who rejected the pantheon of gods and believed that there was just a creator god who was uninvolved in the world's affairs. And they came to that view because there wasn't any evidence that the gods were real. That never became a major position. It never really took hold. And people identified as atheists, we now would call deists, were generally uh, persecuted because they threatened the public order. And sometimes Christians and Jews were also persecuted as atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. And in feedback, we got a comment on YouTube from Fat Girl Ballet who wrote, great episode, amazing research. It's just so depressing how much we're destroying our planet. Anyways, keep up the good work. I've been listening for years, and the amount of effort you put into your work is admirable. I'm looking forward to the next episode. I really hope this one wasn't disappointing, because it's not new research into it, (laughs) but it's something that I did research a few years back. So, yeah, that should be good. And we have a upgrading patron, JS, who was already the top patron who I thought might have had the decimal in the wrong pl- place. Um, yeah, JS has moved it even further. So thank you so much for that. And we also got a new patron, uh, Galen. So thank you both for your support, and thank you to all of our other patrons as well. You can find our feedback form at htotw.com slash contact, or send us an email at contact You can leave us a voicemail message at 208-996-8667, or use the SpeakPipe button on the website. And you can support the show on a monthly basis with Patreon, or just once with PayPal, Credit, Debit, Apple Pay, or Google Pay. And you can find the links at htotw.com slash donate. Until next time, remember, not all those who wander are lost.